growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair. Revenue solves everything. Welcome to the cheat code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Welcome back to The Cheat Code. I am Josh Wagner, joined alongside Justin Gray, the normal cast of characters. Today, we have Matt Doyon, who is a former go-to-market leader, principal, CRO, all the acronyms and letters that you might know for someone who knows how to help scale and build businesses. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, so uh, we got the big neon sign in the background. I didn't realize it was uh, bar night, but hey, it is what it is. It's always uh, bar night. The, it's always bar night uh, with the triple session. So, you know, we were talking a little bit pre-show and obviously the cheat code's all about your cheat and building and scaling businesses. And you kind of hit us over the face with scaling a company from uh, a 500K in ARR to 30 million, not exactly an easy feat for anyone. So let's jump in, dive in right there. Talk to us about that story. And, you know, I'm sure that'll dovetail into the triple session. Yeah, actually, this business here, Triple Session, was born out of solving a problem in the last business rock content. So I'm sure we can weave both of those stories together. Uh, high level is that I was not a founder at rock content, but I joined pretty early on, about half a million in ARR back in 2015. And it was a MarTech SaaS business. So we focused on pulling together a marketplace of content producers through a SaaS product and generating a lot of demand for marketing teams who needed mostly to scale up inbound marketing, content marketing strategy. So the very high level overview is joined at half a million ARR, no processes in place. Everything was wild west. Uh, common story, I think for most early stage, most yes. stage, um, had to put in a lot of the playbooks. I came from HubSpot right before that and had the opportunity to work at HubSpot right alongside Mark Roberge and some of the other founders that were there and really learned at what I consider to be the hands of the masters when it comes to scaling up a go-to-market, especially in that era, 2015-16, in that space, MarTech. So, you know, great artist steal. And I stole a lot from what there I learned at HubSpot back when I was there in 2012, 13, 14, 15 and really just modified it, tweaked it, plugged it into Rock, and it got us to 10 million, really by recycling a lot of those best practices that I had learned at HubSpot and just formatting them to Rock. And then around 10 million, things got interesting. Things started to plateau a little bit. So that's where a bit of innovation had to come in with how we took things to the next level. Well, before we even get it too deep into the 10 million, like, let's take a step back. Like a lot of this audience is early stage, right? And yep. that 500K of ARR is super familiar. So you, you said nothing was there. The cupboard was bare. Talk to us about some of those first steps that you take as a leader to really get the ship moving. I mean, from 500K to 10 million is a big jump on its own, right? So talk to us a little bit about what's happening in that stage in your world. Yeah. And just for some context in terms of lack of resources, which I look back on as a great thing at that time. We had only raised 1.5 million up through 5 million in ARR, which today is pretty lean. Yeah, fairly capital efficient. Yeah. 
And then we had only raised 4 million by the time we got to 10 million. So those numbers are kind of backwards in most organizations, usually raise 10 to get to four. Uh, so we had- what do, you, what do you attribute that success to, right? Like, as you said, it's a pretty lean business. Yeah, so a lot of it is uh, what we needed to put in place. And again, formatting a lot of what I had learned at HubSpot to the rock environment. So first I was leading initially the, just the sales team. So there were five people in sales. Eventually we scaled it up to over 60 before I exited. But uh, with those first five and then 10, 15, we had to put in just some basic blocking and tackling. So what did that look like? Setting up the sales process built on top of a buyer's journey, really nailing down our persona, our ICP, and really having a customer-focused model where the process was built to move the customers through it at their scale, at their time, and really deliver the value messaging appropriately. So that first system of process started there. Um, I made a common mistake earlier, which I had to come back and correct. I always thought system two from there was people. Great, we have a process, now let's go add people and start scaling by hiring great people. That I learned later is system three. System two is demand gen. If you don't know how to feed all those people, don't go hiring them. And as we started to scale up and really get caught up with demand gen and then surpassing it, then it became to the point where, okay, we overhired and now I don't know how to feed all these, these souls that are on the SS rock content. So putting in a lot of the demand gen systems that went beyond inbound was critical for us as we started to grow and diversify. Systems on hiring, uh, this is key and this was a big learning from Rock and some other organizations I was at, you're only as good as the people that you invite along with you on the crazy journey that you're going to be in in an early stage startup. The best thing you could do is hire great people. And the worst thing that you could do is hire the wrong people. And you benefit greatly when you hire well, and you pay dearly when you don't. And because of that, you have to put a lot of thought and planning and foresight into what a great member of a team looks like at your stage in a specific role. And that's a moving target. It moves by stage and it moves as the roles change. So you have to revisit what that ICP, ideal candidate profile, looks like repeatedly. I would say at least on an annual basis, open that book up as you're scaling up and say, okay, do these criteria still match the stage and role that we're at. It's virtually like product market fit. You have a different market internally at different stages and your market are the the people that you're bringing on with you. So you got to be careful there. That feels like a good yeah, episode. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, I want to dive in on that because I was talking with um, uh, John Boucher from uh, stage two yesterday at lunch and like we were both kind of griping about how difficult it seems for, for seed stage, early stage founders to hire great sales talent and you've got a um uh, a blurb up on your linkedin that i love which is you know I, I think it says like you you were pre-conditioned to you know ask good questions like and, and i think that that is quite frankly the the challenge that i see with a lot of you know quote unquote sales professionals i.e like they just don't do really deep discovery and, and truly listen at what the you know what the client's telling them they try to become an expert right and this is kind of a, an epidemic i think within sales we've got all these tools everyone wants to you know be the first to get a message in front of someone but when they do get in front of that buyer 
they really struggle to you know understand that business and quite frankly like take the role of of the idiot on the call like explain everything to me explain your business explain how you're buying this you know what, what's important to you and i'm curious what number one what do you think gave you that predisposition and number two how does that translate to how you think about sales sales talent and go-to-market teams yeah if you asked me 15 years ago uh, is sales taught or is it inborn? You know, is it nature or nurture? And I would have said, ah, oh, it's, it's nature and very little of it is nurture. If you ask me 10 years ago, I said, ah, oh, it's probably a coin toss, 50-50. Ask me today, 90% is learned, 10% is just the natural hardwiring. Why I say that is I am naturally a pretty shitty salesperson, if I'm honest about it. <laughs> If I go back to how I was actually really uh, crafted in the the sales quote unquote DNA, I just didn't have it. I I don't really enjoy social interaction too much. I'm introverted by nature, uh, which surprises most people because right. I have to sell now. Um, but I don't enjoy that. Uh, you know, I'm not the life of the party. Most people consider me pretty standoffish and actually antagonistic, which if you think about challenger methodology is a great That's way perfect. to be as long as you can rough down smooth out the rough edges and not come off as a complete asshole while you're that way. So if you're disagreeable by nature, which I am, as long as you can smooth out those rough edges, then you could be a great salesperson. But what I afforded to, and really what I point to is the fact that as my LinkedIn indicates, I just happened to be raised by a single mom who had to bring me to work a lot. And her jobs were investigative reporter for a newspaper hmm. and later journalism professor. So what did I learn? How do you ask great questions, go right to the heart of a topic and write a story in a very simple language that almost anyone can understand? And then how do you teach people methodologies, systems, frameworks? Lo and behold, fast forward 40 years, I'm leading sales teams on consultative sales processes. Are those two connected? Absolutely. And I think if you asked me 20 years ago, I would have absolutely said, oh, sales is, is just natural. It's just how people are. And maybe I would have attributed the way I was when I started to get success from sales to just me being born a certain way. And I had to do some soul searching to discover no, I'm not actually naturally good at any of this stuff. But my mom really was. And I was just sucking that all into my brain and getting hardwired the right way from learned behavior mm -hmm. from anything I was born with. And so how do you how do you impart that? You know, obviously that's what you guys do at at, at triple session right now. Like yep. I think you said something that's critical there, which is like you have to, you know, realize that what you're doing is is not working or that you need to make a change so that seems to be pretty important i would i would imagine but if someone's bringing you in how, how do you actually go about kind of rewiring someone so it first starts with breaking them down if i'm being honest about it and just going back in time here to another story i was born and grew up around a city named lowell massachusetts which most people today have no clue where it is or what it's all about well there was a movie about it right isn't there a boxing movie about lowell there's a movie about it and the reason why i reference that i was boxing out of that same gym the west end oh, gym, at the same time that irish mickey ward was there from the same coaches 
And it's Very like cool. one of these last bastions of traditional boxing culture that still lives. Boxing is kind of a a sport of the years gone by, except in Lowell. In Lowell, it's like you walk into 1946 and it's like right back in there again. People in old rundown mill buildings with heavy bags all over the place. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I bring that up is when you walk in there, you understand that a lot of what you need to learn is about repetition. It's about being humble because you're going to get knocked on your ass a lot if you're not. And even if you are humble, you're still going to get knocked on your ass a lot. And you have to listen, be coachable, work your ass off. There's a lot that goes into mastery of boxing and you're never done. Fast forward 10 years when I walk into HubSpot, what's the criteria that they tell me when I first get hired? We look for people who are coachable, hardworking, curious. They're willing to put in the effort. They follow what their coaches and best practices are, are telling them. And they never stop this infinite learning process of getting better. It's like, well, yeah, that that's exactly what we were doing back at the West End Gym 10 years ago. <laughs> now, the trainers there weren't using expressions like deliberate practice or spaced learning or interleaved coaching or things like that. They're just saying, you know, get the fuck in the ring and Listen do what up. I'm telling you to do. <laughs> but it, it's all there. It's the same framework and the same methodology. And that's what we're doing now. So the first thing is we now have AI assessment tools where... You need to, to prove what you know and prove what you don't. So if you're not already humble, our tool is going to humble you because you're going to realize how little you might actually know based on what you think you know. So this idea of cognitive bias that we all carry with us where our own personal experience kind of colors the way we look at the world and look at ourselves, we have to really break that down and say, let's give an objective analysis of what that actually is. And we do that already in sales and we do that everywhere in business. And I'm leading a business. This applies to other areas beyond sales, but we do that already. And it's called one-on-one coaching, where if you lead go-to-market teams, you lead sales teams, CS teams, anything that has a one-on-one aspect to it, you're usually not introducing new information. What you're usually doing is going back to things that were already learned and saying, okay, maybe we didn't execute the best way. Maybe we left some pieces out or it was a little sloppy here or there's some loose ends over there. That's just raising the issue that, yeah, you know this stuff, but it's not front of mind. It's not sharp. It's not being executed with discipline. That's what we need to keep coming back to this constantly revisiting best practices again and again and again to achieve mastery at them. doesn't happen overnight. doesn't happen by accident. And usually when we get there, when we get a master level thing, It's because people naturally kind of gravitate to doing something like that on their own. What we're trying to do is say, okay, let's not just allow this laissez-faire leadership philosophy to govern where we are today. Let's put some structure behind it. Let's put some guidance behind it. Let's put a framework behind it so leaders can actually help their people get there. Just like my great coaches at the West End Gym did with me when I was boxing, just like my great leaders at HubSpot did with me when I was selling. Because uh, the ability to set that baseline seems pretty important, right? They, you mentioned the, this uh, assessment that you have, but if you think about taking it into leadership and doing that one-on-one coaching, you have to know the baseline in order to know what you're coaching against though, right? So how, how often does that step miss? You know, you have the assessment, but across organizations, a founder who's hiring their first sales team, how do they assess what that talent baseline looks like? 
Yeah. So it's what I've seen today is pretty superficial. If I'm honest, that's part of the reason why we developed what we developed. It was superficial for me when I was doing it, even late stage, later stage at Rock, where a lot of it was take a certification, work through an interview process. We're going to play detective on Q&A when you move through our interview process. We'll run some role plays. And then uh, what I used to call Q&A, role play, and then just pray. Uh, there was still a lot of guesswork that was involved with it. It's like, ah, all right, and let's hope we caught it right. Now we have the ability to put data behind what we want to see from people, not just from technical knowledge, but from soft skills. So one example there is for the end of my stint at Rock, we were assigning homework and courses and putting things in front of people early, early, early on in the interview process. Not so they would necessarily start the onboarding earlier, although that was a benefit when we did eventually hire them, but we wanted to see how they reacted to it because we could see the back end. Did somebody just blow it off? Did they wait till the night before their next interview and try to rush to get everything in? Or were they methodical about following the instructions that we had delivered them as far as what we expected? We could watch that and see it going on. And that clued us in a lot more to the personality that we were inviting in, not just what they presented. Because especially in sales, salespeople can sell themselves really well in an interview. And then six months later, you're wondering, who is this person? Yes. What happened to that person I interviewed six months ago where I thought that they were coachable and a hard charger and dynamic, and now they are stubborn and think they have it all figured out. And they're missing quota at the same time. How does that work? So we, we now have the ability to really put objective data in front of these decisions. And it's not just for sales anymore. You could do this for any role that you're hiring, as long as you know what you want to look for. So you mentioned, you know, the, the factor of time there and, and just kind of repeatability. And, you know, we had Scott Brinker on uh, a, a while ago and you mentioned like the old 10,000 hours thing is really like closer to a hundred thousand hours of, of practice to really become an expert. What do you, what do you see in terms of that necessary length of time? I'm sure there's variance there, but you know, when we talk to founders, everyone's looking for someone who's, you know, carried a bag for 10 years and they're, you know, they've never missed a, a, a month of quota. What, what does it actually, you know, take in terms of practice to, to uplevel those skill sets? It's hard to say that there's a one fit. So I first, I hate the expression 10,000 hours, right? Um, why is that? It actually didn't come from Malcolm Gladwell originally. Uh, it came from a guy named Anders Ericsson who wrote this book, Peak, years before, and Gladwell referenced Peak. And what Ericsson talked about is generally this baseline of 10,000 hours kept coming up, but that's all it was, this general idea. But when you're looking to sell books, these general nuanced ideas, they sell at the peak level. And then when you say, no, it's 10,000 hours, then you sell at the Ma Malcolm Gladwell level because you simplify the concept, right? The reality is that it's messy and everybody is different and some people catch things faster than others and you really have to personalize everything. So one trend that we're tracking very closely right now at Triple Session is this merger between sales leadership, sales enablement, and sales operations. 
and we're really pushing this narrative as well that sales enablement is great because it's broad-based. They have all the data, they have all the information, training material, but they don't customize really well. Sales leadership customizes great. They one-on-one, they coach, they know exactly who the individual is and where they are. They just don't scale training really well. And if you put those two people together, those two groups together, and then you stick operations in there from a data perspective, and you let the numbers overrule what impulse is as far as where people shouldn't spend their time, now you can put together a system where operations tells me data-driven what I need to work on that's going to get me the best return on investment. Management, my leader, my coach can help me figure out what that looks like and create the action plan for it. And enablement has the warehouse of information and all that great material that I can resource and plug in to actually do the improvement. If we get these three teams working together, it's a force multiplier for sales efficiency. And if you're not talking about sales efficiency right now at late 2023, getting into 2024, what else are you talking? Maybe you just are, are riding some wave that who knows what you're working on. But no one else is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it does sound like there's a little bit more of a genesis behind what you just described. So you, I, I interrupted you a while back talking about hitting this plateau at $10 million. So yeah, feels like it's the time to go there because you're you're talking about something that seems a little bit more mature than than an early an early, early stage company. So talk to us about what this plateau was at $10 million and the genesis of what you're talking about now. Yeah, so we we really had a, a couple strong muscles at Rock, and I think a lot of early stage businesses do, where they hit a certain market at the right time with the right offer, and then things start to move fast and you start to see some velocity. But single muscles rarely scale up to an IPO or an exit. What typically happens is you exhaust it and then you have to look for other channels. And that was certainly the the trail that Rock followed where we were hitting an inbound generated market at the right time with the right audience. Inbound had already matured by the time we were really getting going in 2015. But content, which fueled inbound, was showing up as the the internal problem for scaling inbound. It's like, all right, great, I got inbound, we're scaling it now, and now I'm hitting this other challenge of content at scale. So we have the timing and we used inbound effectively to pull in a lot of our own leads, but that only goes so far, especially when you move up market and you're looking to get to mid-market enterprise deals, you need to diversify because if you just use one lever, it's just too risky to bet the entire business. And what we started to see was the efficiency in the team started to plateau and then drop because there are only so many people you can stuff into an inbound lead flow until you start to lose some of those efficiencies. And the the management style that I had was just, again, based on a lot of copy and paste on what I had learned before. And this really crystallized in the ongoing improvement one-on-one conversations that we are having internally, where it's still what I see in most sales organizations, which is either it's all just about pipeline. Hey, let's look at your deals. Let's see what's coming in. Let's try to strategize and get creative on winning them, which is great in the short term, but doesn't really structure any long-term repeatable value. You're just hoping that people are getting it when you do that. 
or if you are actually working on skill building, which is more sustainable and long-term, it's usually this very open-ended, light, unstructured conversation, which is great. I'm glad we talked about it. Go get them and let's come back next week. <laughs> and nothing is written down. Nothing is measured. Nothing is revisited. There's limited accountability. And you essentially start from zero every time you have that next one-on-one. -on -one. That's what I was doing for years at Rock because it was working. But it was working not because of it. It was working in spite of that. It was working because we were really great at inbound and that sales motion. And it started to run out. So I furiously started to work and understanding what are the root causes of what's going on here? Where can we get better? How can we get productivity back? And with limited capital and not a lot of money to throw at the problem, we just had to figure out a new way of doing things. And I really looked at that conversation of one-on-ones that we were having and saw all of these gaps and weaknesses that I was doing and my managers were doing at that time that I had to solve. So gradually, we started to build a framework and a process to tighten the screws on it and really start to capture a lot of the energy from one one-on-one -on -one to the next. And that's where the three-by-three three coaching came in. There's a huge benefit to that beyond just the seller. You know, we've talked about this before, especially as organizations scale to the, the spots where you're saying, you start to get this layered sales management, right? The frontline manager, the director, the VP, the CRO, and all these layers. And in, in a lot of organizations, it's hard to differentiate what one does versus the other. It literally turns into the frontline manager getting his pipeline from the seller, rolling that up and taking it to the director, the director, like it's a waste of time and energy. Why do we have all these layers? And it's not only that, I mean, the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, process between all those different layers is completely worthless <laughs> right. if, if they're even doing one-on-ones. Yeah. So having some structure around, even at the layered level, right? What are these expectations? What is the baseline we're starting from? And then being able to have meaningful one-on-ones that, you know, oftentimes I think frontline managers are the biggest they get suckered into, hey, you were a great seller. Why don't you become a manager? They go into frontline management. They have no idea what they're getting into. And then it's just like, I want to do what my boss did, which is what you just outlined. <laughs> so giving those yeah. folks who I feel like have the biggest burden to carry in a lot of cases, uh, some structure would be great. And this is a natural evolution that we were eventually going to get to. It's just accelerated now, especially in SaaS and tech, because everybody's freaking out over efficiency in the market. And I, the reason why I say it's the natural evolution, if you look at new employee onboarding, that's not a novel idea. It used to be. It used to be, hey, we're going to hire great people and then just go sit in with people and figure it out. And then it wasn't long before we realized, well, we better give some structure and a framework and really upload the information that people need to be successful in this role and be very regimented, measure it have onboarding exams and like really put a lot of structure. So the person has the best chance of success in this role. We don't just want to hire and then lean back and say, okay, now it's up to you. But most organizations don't carry that forward. And once they graduate onboarding, then it's like, okay, so now it's up to you. And there's this great quote that everyone phrases where I'm, I'm going to butcher it. So I'm going to paraphrase, but we've all heard it. It's if you want people to build ships, don't teach them how to collect wood and give them orders and do this. Teach them to long for the open ocean, something like that. I hate that quote. 
not because it's entirely wrong, because it's half wrong. It's not just teach them to long for the ocean and don't teach them to gather wood and collect all that. Do both. Teach them to long for the ocean and have all that intrinsic motivation and the vision and give them a guidebook to, yeah, and you want to collect wood and here's where you want to get in. Here's the fastest way to do that. And so you don't stumble and go looking in the desert for the forest, go over here, give them both. It's not an either or scenario. And when you do that, then you can trust that you've set someone up, someone up for long-term success. It's not set it and forget it. It's set it and keep revisiting it. And that's what people really need to maximize success, especially now with this new generation who's coming into the workforce. And we could have a whole podcast on generational dynamics and click into it. And I'm a Gen Xer, which means I will spend hours shitting all over baby boomers and millennials and Zoomers and everyone else. I was going to say, I feel like you just opened up a Pandora's box. <laughs> How much time do we have here? <laughs> no. So in terms of like productizing that motion, like, for, I mean, you, you guys have a methodology for this, right? Like you just like walk through like what, what is that methodology and like, what does that look like in, you know, a day-to-day -day functional manner? Yeah. So we call it three by three coaching. The first three is there's always something to work on and we could typically bucket them into one of three categories, technical skills, professional skills, or personal skills. What's going to be best for you right now? In sales, technical skills are the core blocking and tackling, prospecting, discovery, demo, proposals, negotiating, this host of skills. And we have outlined dozens of them just in that, that vertical. Professional skills, which the universities still do a horrible job teaching us, things like time management and business acumen, communication skills. These are core to success for everyone in the professional world and sales professionals, of course. And then personal skills, emotional intelligence, growth mindset, balance. I mean, we got into things like uh, sleep, diet, exercise. We had people that would go into all different directions. If you're really a leader of people, not just professionals, you have to have that as part of the conversation because sometimes your people are just going to freak out and say, hey, man, I'm really stressed and I just don't know how to handle it. My life is different now. I just had a kid and this is going on. I still have my quota hit and all this. What can I do here? I was like, okay, let's let's talk about stoicism, this great philosophy that's now been introduced to the workplace that might benefit you. Let's start to get you. Do you know anything about it? No, I don't know anything about it. Okay, let's work on that. That's a personal skill. But if you are leading salespeople, you don't really consider it. If you're leading people in sales, people in CS, people in HR, if you put the person first, you have to consider that. So the first three, technical, professional, personal. And then the other three in the three by three to really structure it on a reoccurring basis. Point of focus, you want to work on just one thing at a time. It's like tightening screws. You can tighten one screw at a time. You could try to tighten two at a time. Really hard. Tightening three is impossible. So tighten one screw at a time. Come up with a specific action plan together with your coach. And then the third piece, measurable results. And have that be the framework that you are going to document. And it's the player who owns that, not the coach. You have to build accountability for it. It's the player. They should be bringing the energy. They should be governing it. And the coach is just the guide, the Sherpa that's going to lead you to the top of the mountain. 
you're the one who's putting one foot in front of the other. If you're the rep, the CSM, the HR coordinator, whoever you might be. And it's that. And you're doing that. You're doing that through every layer of the organization, right? Like it's not just salespeople. It's, you know, managers, it's C-level. So what's over. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would make total sense. I have my own coach who I hire externally and I work on that process with him uh, for myself because it keeps me on track. It keeps me on pace. Hey, I got a life too. You know, I got three kids. I got a business. I got, you know, soccer practice and everything else that's going on. I'm not always going to keep this stuff organized and top of mind. I need a reference to come back to. I need a framework. I need a structure. And this is just making life a lot more simple and a lot more organized when we're talking about ongoing improvement as a system. Uh, I started in sales with it in 2017. After a couple of years doing that, I folded in the customer success and account management team. A year later, services was added to it. And I wasn't going out annexing these different teams. It just made logical because we started to just get more operationally efficient and started to see the results. So it made sense to cascade this through the organization. So, and now running the entire organization at Triple Session, which is still pretty small, I use this in marketing. I use this in product. I use this in development. This is the system of record that we use for ongoing improvement with every role. It's a life. It's not a sales hack. Great. I love it. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good transition. You know, we want to give you an opportunity to to pump Triple Session as much as you can. So tell us where to to find you. Find Triple Session. Is there like a free download of, of the framework, something like that, that you can get people better. excited about? I got better for you. So find me on LinkedIn. Um, I live there. Connect with me. DM me. We can we can get going there. I'm not inbox zero, but I am in mail zero. So if you hit me up on LinkedIn, I'll get to it. Uh, for Triple Session, we are leaning heavily into product-led growth. So there are a lot of sales training uh, formulas out there and academies and products. Ours is free for 80% of what we offer. So you can go to triplesession.com, click on the get started button, and you're off and running in about two minutes where you could start building out this measured framework of deliberate practice and micro learning. A triple session is a three-step methodology quick little micro training all by video today, but we're adding audio and text soon, uh, usually about 10 minutes with a quiz following it to make sure you uploaded the key takeaways and then immediate data on what you get right, what you get wrong, where do you fit in in terms of your percentages based on those core criteria with other people that look like you based on your role and your age and the role in geography and industry. Incredible. And that was just triplesession.com, right? Triplesession.com. Just All right. I suggest you check it out. Sounds like high, high value. Always, Matt, it was a pleasure having you. We appreciate you taking the time. Incredibly valuable session for everybody. For those of you listening, please uh, send us a like, a star, a, a, a review, anything a you can to a heart. Yeah. Whatever kind of emoji that the, what is it? Gen millennial will yeah. put out there. Gen alpha, man. We're on alpha. Gen alpha. I do have Gen one alpha. other plug and it's for a nonprofit that if I- Yes, sir. Uh, I am working directly with a nonprofit called build.org. They've been in the market for years. They work directly with under-resourced communities and going into the high schools and teaching juniors and seniors there everything about entrepreneurship. They have them build little businesses. They do pitch contests. They really get those kids hardwired. The way I'm working with them is I, last month, I published a book through Wiley called Revenue Revolution. 
buy it. It goes through a lot of all of what we've talked about here, building these systems out for sales. Proceeds go to build. So not only do you learn something that's actionable for your business, you do a good thing by helping a great organization that's building the next generation of entrepreneurs. Are they nationwide? They're nationwide, yeah. So they're here in Boston where I am. They're in San Francisco. They're in Chicago. I think they're in like 16 metropolitan areas. Seattle. They've, they've got a pretty decent footprint. New York. That's awesome. I had to check them out. That's yeah, I mean, such a such a such a needed, you know, resource for for kids, certainly. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's huge. All right. So build.org, get the revenue revolution book to support build.org. Go to triplesession.com, get your free resources. If you're learning how to do one-on-ones. That's right. If you're listening to us for the first time, because Matt is here and he's awesome. Thank you for joining Matt. Thanks for bringing a new audience. Go check out our other shows. Until next time, thanks for joining the Cheat Code.